Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that we would see you more clearly, love you more dearly, follow you more nearly, day by day. Amen. Well, today is the second of two sermons that are talking about Jesus' mental furniture. And we're thinking in the context of what Jesus said in Luke 22 about the last, during the Last Supper. Fleming Rutledge, who's a um, theologian, says, if you want to know what went on in Jesus' mind, read the Old Testament. And then she says, there are many things we do not know about Jesus, but of this we can be sure, his mind and heart were shaped by intimate, continuous interaction with the scriptures. So last week we looked at first fruits, thinking about the Feast of First Fruits, and I said last week, and you may know this anyway, that Jesus rose on the Feast of First Fruits. So we went back to Deuteronomy and had a look at that. And this week, we're thinking about Jesus' words where he says, uh, this is the new covenant in my blood. And the new covenant is quite a familiar idea in the New Testament, um, but you may or may not know that it only occurs once in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31, which we're looking at today. And so we're going to go back and have a look at that and see how that might enrich our understanding of what Jesus says when he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, because he presumably knew that text pretty well, and it may um, give us some riches that otherwise we won't get. We often use the lens of the New Testament to look at the Old Testament, and that's good. But Christopher Wright says what we should do is first look through the eyes of the original hearers or the original readers, probably they were hearers, and hear what they were thinking, you know, put ourselves back in their place and try and tune in to what they were thinking and understanding before we come to the New Testament where we get, you know, many great additional uh, pieces of information. So I brought my time machine. And we're going to go back to 600 years um, before Jesus. And I'm just going to turn it around because I'm not supposed to go away from the microphone while I'm doing this. So people over there might have to leave their pew. So I brought my chief time traveller, whose name is Miss Pansy. And she greets you in her characteristic fashion. She's a real pig for studying the past. So we'll put her in her <laughs> time machine and she'll blast off um, to the 600 years before Jesus, to the 6th, 5th century. Now, at that time, Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And um, Jeremiah had been warning them about the exile that was coming, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the promise that we've been reading today, and um, thank you, Georgia, that was super, um, is sandwiched between two accounts of siege and exile. So Jeremiah 29, the famous letter to the exiles, that's in the siege of Jehoiakim, or in the exile of Jehoiakim, uh, that was in 597, 
And then after this, in chapter 32, we start into the siege of Zedekiah, which was 10 years later. So we're, we're kind of sandwiched here among the sieges and the exiles. Um, and the second one also had the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which was, you know, not, not lovely. Um, but here, we've kind of taken a forward look. So God starts to, to talk about what will happen after the exile. So most of the book of Jeremiah is like, whoa, whoa, don't do that, repent, repent, repent. And here it says, well, after you've made the big mess, this is how I'm going to clean it up. And so um, we hear here about a new exodus, a restoration to the land, which was in what Georgia read to us. And it's a bit like um, what we read last week, the Deuteronomy and the rest of the Pentateuch is like the beginning of the story where we go into the land and we have the Sinai covenant. And then this is like where we go out of the land, the land and we need a new covenant and then there's going to be a return. So looking at the text, verse 27, the days are coming, declared the Lord, when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and animals. So people will return, but also, you know, there'll be a regeneration of the land, which had got into a pretty bad mess. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, these are all words that are in Jeremiah 1 and like key terms that go through the book. Um, so I'll watch over them, and that's a key term too about the watching, and these terms, to build and to plant. So he says, I'm going to do smashing, and then I'm going to do rebuilding, and we're looking at the rebuilding part here. Verse 31, days are coming. So days are coming, days are coming. It's a big refrain in this text. Declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Now, this is pretty nice because the people of Israel the northern kingdom already gone 100 years before and they're scattered and we don't know what happened to them. And the people of Judah, um, mostly in Babylon, and we do know what happened to them and they're the ones that are going to be brought back. But God still cares about those Israel people. So what does he mean by a new covenant? When we came back from Hong Kong, I needed a car and I went to a dealer. It was a Christian dealer. He was really fantastic. And he gave me this really, really, really good secondhand Corolla. And... I love that car, but it got old because it was second hand and then it got older and older. So I was able to get a new car and I said, what I want is a Corolla. So the only thing that's different about my new car is that it's white instead of gray or whatever the old one was. I've even forgotten the color, isn't it shameful? And it's got just a couple of little things, but it's basically the same car, except it's a new car, right? So is that what we're talking about? Well, bad luck to us, if you have a look at what it says in the next verse, 32, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. So we're not getting another Corolla here. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. Now, I think this is a little bit ironic because they were smashing the covenant from like day one. You know, he gives them the Ten Commandments, he goes up the mountain, they you know, worship the golden calf, he comes down, he smashes the things, he goes up again. So they're already on, like, you know, recycle. But here, this seems to be something different, not just a new Corolla. And this is what he says um, are some of the features of the new covenant. And the thing is quite puzzling. If you know a lot about the Old Testament, as Andrew or Andy do, is these are all things that are part of the Old Covenant. Like, where is the newness? So let's look at these old things first and then we'll 
grovel around and look for a newness. So in verse 33, I will put my law in there. It's actually in their midst. So it's not clear if it's in the midst of the community, like the tabernacle was in the middle of the tents, or if it's like in the midst of a person. This word is used both for your own inner being and for communal um, situationness and write it on their hearts, remembering that in the Old Testament, heart's not about emotion, but about the will. So we're going to have this inner experience of the law written on our hearts pretty permanently. In chapter 17, it says, your sin is written on your hearts with an iron pen. Sounds painful, doesn't it? Um, but I think God is a bit nicer than that when he writes on our hearts. So this is relational. You know, it's, it's, it's in my heart, it's in my in a being and perhaps in the midst of all of us. It's, it's personal, it's not just something out there on a notice board or a whiteboard. And then he says, oh, and that's in Deuteronomy, the word is very near to you, it is in your mouth and on your heart for you to observe. So that's Deuteronomy and here we go again, part of the new covenant. All right, and the next one, I will be their God and they will be my people. Well, God said this to Abraham, chapter 17 of Genesis. He said it again in Exodus 6 and again in Leviticus 26. And he says it six times in Jeremiah and quite a lot of other places. So this is not new either. This is, this is as old as Abraham, which if we were going in the time machine again, we had to go like um, 600 years back to the Exodus and then four or 600 years back to Abraham. So we're you know, in the deep distant past by now. And God has already wanted to be their God and said that they will be his people, making a covenant with them. Then um, verse 34, no longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, the book of Jeremiah is mostly a complaint that people do not know the Lord. There's a lot of, you don't know me, you don't know me, you don't know me. What are you doing? You don't know me. But in, um, there are several places where he explains what it means to know the Lord. And in chapter 9, uh, verse 24, he says, um, let people understand and know me. So he's going to give us a little definition. That I am the Lord. I act with steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. So he's talking about his character here, not just like a mystical feeling to some unnamed and unknowable person, but he's got a name, I am Yahweh, and he's got a character, justice, righteousness, and chesed, which is steadfast love, loving kindness, something like that. And then he spells it out again in chapter 22. He says in 22.3, Thus says the Lord, act with justice and righteousness. Here, those two terms that he already said, I'm like this, justice and righteousness, and you should do this as well. And deliver them and deliver from the hand of the oppressor anyone who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the alien, the orphan and the widow, or shed innocent blood in that place. And those of you who are in Old Testament know that the alien, the the orphan and the widow are in Deuteronomy, you know, like God's favourite, favourite people. So this again is not new, it's the old ideas being brought back together. And then the last little bit, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. 
and you don't need me to tell you that it's also part of the old covenant and the reason for all those sacrifices and rituals and so on. So what is going to be new about this new covenant? Well, I don't know if you, didn't, if you noticed or not that there's no call to obedience here. In the old covenant, it's I will do this and you need to do this. But the book of Jeremiah is such a disaster. God's obviously realised that people are totally incapable of doing their side. So this is just God. I will um, put my law in your heart. I will cause you to know me. I will forgive you. And it seems to be a whole unilateral action of God here to take responsibility and to achieve what needs to happen. Let's go to Luke 22. I'm in verse um, 19. So the first part I talked about last week, so just 19 and 20 today. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, Andrew McGowan, who's actually an Australian but is now at Yale, is a um, early church historian. And he knows a lot and he's read everything. And he says that, so he could be wrong, but I'm just quoting him because I don't know <laughs> about that era. And he says that this breaking of the bread idea is actually not found in texts of that period about just having a meal with other people. It's something like special that Jesus talks about. So perhaps, probably, you know, do your own probability test. Um, Jesus is really wanting us to think when he breaks the bread that he's talking about his death because that's not normal. Like he breaks the bread and he says, um, this is my body. Um, do this in remembrance of me. Now, remembrance in the Old Testament isn't like, oh yeah, I remember that, I should you know, go to the shop. We get a really good idea of remembrance in Exodus 2, where um, the Israelites are groaning because of the terrible time of their slavery, and God remembers them. He didn't go, oh yeah, I'd forgotten about them, I was sort of looking over here at Ethiopia. He goes, oh yeah, I remember them, and that means I'm now gonna swing into action on their behalf. So it's a bit like you get a reminder email, which is not really like this at all, but, you know, and you actually do whatever you promise to do. So he, he acts on his commitment to his people. So when he invites us, do this in remembrance of me, it's a call to action. It's not just as we sit in communion, oh yeah, I remember Jesus, thank you Jesus, that was lovely, but uh, he's asking us, this is what I did and I want you to to go along with me and to make my life part of yours. Then in verse 20, he says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, the word covenant is way wider than what we've got in Jeremiah. You know, you've got a whole Old Testament to range over to find out what covenants are all about. But what we got from Jeremiah, from Jeremiah 31, was that the covenant is on the heart, it's personal, that it's relational, I will be your God and you'll be my people, and know the Lord, like really know the Lord, and also transformational because of the forgiveness of sins. And he also talks about the new covenant in my blood. Now that was a secret in Jeremiah 31. We, we didn't know anything about blood in Jeremiah 31. God was just gonna sort of do something you know, from the sky, but here, you know, he's come to the earth and he shed his blood. It's a lot of blood, 
in the Old Testament. This um, story is set in the Passover, so we know there's lamb's blood that was put on the lintels. Um, if you go to Hebrews, it talks about the Sinai covenant where blood was sprinkled on the people and also talks about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where the sins are cleaned up. So there's lots of, lots of different things that are probably being referenced here. So we're going to think about how does Jesus' blood work? So maybe we think about it as an external sanitizer, you know, like you put the, the COVID stuff on and clean off the germs, you know, clean yourself up. Well, that's one way of thinking about it, and that's true, but it's not the only thing. And we might think about it as a blood transfusion. About 10 years ago, I had to have some surgery, and unfortunately, I kept bleeding and bleeding and bleeding, and I needed, I think, four or five units of blood, but I don't remember because I was actually unconscious. Um, but, but it was a lot of blood. Like, the whole family was at the end of the bed, and the surgeon was like this, you know, watching for me to wake up. It was, it was pretty terrible. But I am really grateful to the people who gave their blood, right? Like, I'm alive. It's life-giving. I got that blood. I'm alive. But I don't know those people. I'm not in a relationship with them. So Jesus, you know, cleanses us like the hand sanitizer. He, you know, gives us life like the blood transfusion, but there's more. There's just, he, um, in his giving of his blood, he's bound our life with his and drawn us into this new covenant where we know him and he's our God and we're his people and all these things that we're talking about, it's um, way bigger than just, you know, a bit of blood cleansing you. So, summary. In Jeremiah, we saw that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant had a lot in common. They were relational, they were personal, and they were transformational. But Jesus, in chapter 22, reminds us that we are to remember him and that in his blood he binds us to himself. So there's kind of old covenant, Jeremiah new covenant and Jesus new covenant to kind of stack up and learn from there. I just want to finish with, it's a poem but we'll use it as a prayer from George Herbert and some of you will know this poem pretty well and for others it will be unfamiliar. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I said, worthy to be here, Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it does deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. 
So I did sit and eat.